0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.
1: One of my missions has been to make sure they're early to the party and not late, which is common with technological innovation. Uh, So that's been a focus of mine and I've actually so far been calling or Zooming or meeting Indigenous artists in person to explain the technology and the good and the bad as well, because I think it's important that they're informed. And I'm not just approaching with, look, they're amazing. Just do it. You'd be silly not to, but also going like, hey, like these are the risks and these, but these are the benefits. So it's up to you whether you want to hop on to this or not.
0: Well, it's great to be back with you here as always. We're proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse. Neon Treehouse is still the best digital agency on the planet Earth and have the right solution for any and all of your digital needs. Just check out the offer in our show notes to learn more. Creole are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose, and their delicious healthy sodas are ideal for those looking for a bubbly and refreshing alternative to sugary sodas, or just a break from the booze in general. You can get a great deal on Creole purchases, just check out the details in our show notes to learn more. As you may be aware, our new membership model is in full swing, and current members like Andrew1, Andrew2, Nikki, Margaret, Ben, Misha, and Chris are now enjoying great benefits via our Supercast platform, including... Early access to all episodes, all episodes being ad-free, full transcripts of every episode, my five key takeaways from each episode, personal audio notes on every episode, and broken introductions to podcast guests. To get your membership and support our sustainability, just hit the link in our show notes under membership or head directly to humansofpurpose.supercast.com. For values-aligned organizations out there wanting to connect with our wonderful audience, we offer a range of sponsorship or promotional packages. We offer just 10 opportunities per year for guests to appear on the show, along with a number of other promotional perks. To learn more, just hit the link in our show notes under promotional packages or head to humansandpurpose.com and scroll down the middle of the page. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Alicia Geary to the podcast. Thanks to Scott Coe, another recent guest, for suggesting that Alicia join me on the podcast. Alicia is a serial entrepreneur and has most recently been the founder and CEO of Provy, spelled P-R-O-V-V-Y. Provy provides an infrastructure allowing artists, both First Nations and non-Indigenous, to authenticate their work and license it to brands, offering them easier access to additional revenue streams. It will also offer an NFT marketplace, allowing them to make the most out of minting their work and to continue to receive royalties if it is sold on. The platform also services to address a power imbalance, ensuring that the trail of ownership is preserved and making sure artists are not taken advantage of by bigger brands seeking to profit off their work. Alicia's work and purpose is inspired by her roots and identity as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman. Alicia is also founder and director of Favela and co-founder of Thirsty Turtle. She's an absolute gun. And we could have bantered for hours, but I think she's most inspiring for the way she holds to such a strong cultural and personal purpose, which helps her to drive forward her entrepreneurial pursuits and dreams, all of which are oriented around helping others. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alicia as much as I did. I am so glad Alicia has made it here after being at the incorrect Commons yesterday. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, thanks, Mike. Turns out there's uh, more than one Commons, uh, so watch out for that.
0: Yeah, that's totally my fault, and um, I think I need to get better with meeting invitations to specify that uh, the Commons is kind of like becoming a McDonald's. There's one every hundred meters, so everywhere is Commons. Yeah, important to clarify. Um, Let's talk about your incredible journey to what you do today in Startup Land. Um, Mm -hmm. Take me back a little bit, and maybe for framing that question, because it's a pretty broad question, I'm curious whether you always felt like a startup founder. Was that something that was inherent to you in your kind of feelings or personality or mindset? Um, or is it just sort of naturally the pathway that you've sort of gone down?
1: Mm, I think I would swing towards it being the natural part of where I went, only because when I was younger, I didn't think that you could start a business. It hadn't occurred to me um that that was a career that you could a career path that you could choose. no one in my life on both sides of my family had ever started a business. But I would say that the signs of entrepreneurship were there in hindsight. For example, in grade seven, I think I have a massive hero complex, for example. So in grade seven, I remember starting a peer mediator program at my school to combat bullying where younger ch- kids, could approach older kids and sit down and have a mediation mediation session with their bully, and the older kids had uh, frameworks with which to work from, and that then rolled out to schools all around Cairns. And that, I think, was an early sign of that sort of problem-solving um, ability combined with nosiness and, like, hero complex all in one that, yeah, when you, in hindsight, you can see that, but... Um, yeah.
0: It's interesting that you call it a hero complex. I would have thought of it more as like a um, Captain Compassion or something.
1: Definitely, yeah, definitely uh, Captain Compassion is there, but I've always um, felt a need to help other people. Um, and that's sort of why I call it my hero complex.
0: And so that first um, starting up that program with bullies and um, and victims, that's kind of what got you thinking a bit more broadly about solving bigger problems?
1: Definitely, definitely. And I think that made me realize that even when the systems around us weren't built to deal with problems, that individuals could create those systems. And that was sort of my first foray into realizing, oh, like I've put this in action and it's actually doing good and the victims are grateful, but so are the kids on the other end side of the um, equation, the bullies, for example, and that it was working and it was something that I could just come up with um, that wasn't already present within the system.
0: And so doing that must have given you a bit of a taste for um, solving bigger problems. Were you aware kind of um, at school that there were things like startups and uh, social enterprises? And I I say that because when I was at school, those things just were not options.
1: No, definitely. They weren't there. um, To give people context, I'm 27 now. So Grade seven, that was, for me, I was uh, 12 years old, um, and that was 2007. So easy way to remember, 2012, I was in grade 12. And there wasn't any sort of social entrepreneurship or startup initiatives within school. And I sort of didn't hit that part of realization until I went to university, actually.
0: And what did you study at uni?
1: So I had the intention to be a lawyer, actually. I had approached mum at the end of Uh, Year 12, basically, with three options that I wanted to do. I thought teacher, because I loved kids. I also loved learning and sharing knowledge. Journalism, because I can talk underwater, as you (laughs) can probably already tell. And a lawyer, because I had this inherent sense of justice and uh, thirst within me to fight inequality. And also, again, could negotiate with my mum and very good arguer. So... (laughs) (laughs) I went to the university (laughs) with the intention of being a lawyer.
0: And how far did you go down that path?
1: So I started in straight law, my degree at Bond University, Mm -hmm. and then merged that into business law when I realized I wanted to learn, um, yeah, how to create a business and majored in accounting because I was terrible at numbers and money, and so were a lot of people in my family. And it's not that we were terrible at it. We just hadn't had the education I was the first in the family to actually graduate with a university degree.
0: Wow. Um, and so what's it like kind of not getting numbers? I mean, because I'm, I think of myself as a fairly spoken word person. I mean, I run a podcast that's probably pretty self-evident, um, but um, I've always struggled a bit more with numbers. How did you find that pathway going from the kind of the ideas to numbers?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm the same. I flourished in English. I was in extension English, loved plays, loved reading, loved writing. I literally got grounded once because I came back too late from the library. Like I was that sort of kid, such a rebel.
0: (laughs) You got in trouble for being too diligent?
1: Uh, Yeah, because I uh, would go to the library and hire out like 10 books at a time. And mum would be like, "You're late coming home," and I'm like, "Like I've come from the library. I've not come from a crack den." But and I—that was me being rebellious and. Um, Yeah, numbers were never sort of a thing I enjoyed doing. I think me, I like to play in the gray spaces of the world and ambiguity and numbers just do not have that. So I, in university, I realized I should knuckle down and actually get my numbers straight if I'm planning to go into business and I think I need to learn how to read profit and loss sheets, for example. So it was a challenge, still is a challenge, just because I've done accounting doesn't mean I trust my accounting skills, but I think it was just a necessary evil that I realized I had to undertake.
0: For all all the accountants out there and the profession, it's a necessary evil is what we call it here in (laughs) in language land. But uh, good to have that on the record and straight. So was there a hat drop moment for you kind of at uni where you were like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to start my first um, venture.
1: Mm, Yeah, how it actually came about was I had always tried to make friends that were different than I. So I think that came about because of how my mother raised us. She was a police officer and she would – move us around quite a bit. Uh, for example, I think in total, I went to nine different schools. Gee. Um, so I got really good at making new friends yeah. because you had to, because sometimes I was at a school for like a week and and then I'd be moving again. So because of that um, amount of times we've moved, I think I developed uh, adaptability as just a core um, ability of mine. And so when I finally decided to Uh, get into startups. It was because I'd made a friend from a different background who had his own startup in high school. And that's when I realized and went, wow, that's so cool. You started a business while you were in high school. So that for me was my first exposure to the fact that a young person could start a business.
0: And so did you have like a number of conversations about that with that friend and then that sort of led you down the sort of formulation pathway to your Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So I I talked to him about his idea and what he was doing and – He was a a white guy and is still my best friend today, actually. And um, I then had a boyfriend who had done the same thing in high school. And I think I sort of just looked at them, and because I knew them so well, I just just thought, you know, if you can do it, then I can definitely do it. Because sometimes you're a dumbass. So I just realized, like, anybody could do it, and it didn't matter how young you were. And that's what sort of gave me that curiosity to try it myself.
0: Curiosity and maybe confidence as well.
1: Yes, definitely. Because again, I would look at these guys and think, you're not that different than me. Uh, there's, um, you might know a little bit more about starting a business because you've done it before, but I realized I could play in that field as well.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Fabella uh, before we move and discuss how you started Proview.
1: Yeah, so Fabella was my sort of first aha um, idea that made me, that gave me a purpose as how I tell my friends and how I frame it. And it actually came about because I was an Indigenous scholarship student at my university. It's a private university, one of the only ones in Australia, and they uh, actually auction off Indigenous artworks to fund scholarships. It's an awesome initiative to try and get more Indigenous students through the doors. And so I was asked if I wanted to become an art tour guide um, because they had the largest private collection of Indigenous art hanging around the walls of the university which you'd often see going to class, for example. And because I'd had more exposure to my Torres Strait Islander heritage than my Aboriginal heritage, given my mum was Torres Strait Islander, my dad's Aboriginal, but raised us mostly as a single mother, I put my hand up because I wanted to learn more about that side of my culture and also, it's not like we sit at dinner and they're like, all right, kids, this is the meaning and symbolism of everything of our culture. Like, those aren't normal dinner conversations. So,
0: <laughs> this is just like a white guy assuming that that's an indigenous dinner time conversation is like the, the tell me about the rainbow serpent again.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's not like we don't sit around and talk about that often. So, there's still a whole lot of the culture that um, is unpacked gradually that mm. you don't learn in one sitting and you don't like complete modules to learn that sort of thing. So yep. I put my hand up and was asked and, like, learnt all of the stories behind the artworks of my section. And that's when I realised the significance of the paintings, that they, in a way, were our only records of these stories because we're a people that tell stories through word of mouth and pass our stories down through word of mouth. There aren't sort of English records of, you know, what this story is of this elder who did this thing and what this plant does. Mm. So I realised wow, these are actually, in a way, our um, our histories in these paintings and artists, in a way, are our historians. Mm. Um, so that got me really excited and it made me realise that a lot of people didn't know this and would look at paintings and think like, oh, they're either really pretty or they're weird, uh, for example, because it's something that you don't often see. And I realised if people knew the significance and stories within the paintings and how cool that was in terms of the fact that they passed down such important knowledge, then they would be more interested um, in our culture and appreciate our culture more, and by extension, the people. Because growing up, I was still sort of on the edge of uh, a lot of uh, ignorance and um, racism in Australia. So that got me really, really excited, and I had the idea that I just wanted to find a way to share it, and then I thought if I create a product and incorporate the artwork onto the product – And built it so that non-Indigenous people were interested in it, i.e. they were contemporary designs for mass market appeal, Mm. that they then got to read the story behind the artwork incorporated and the artist and learn that way and develop that appreciation and understanding. So that's how Fabella came about.
0: And so talk to me about the mission and and the product behind Fabella.
1: Yeah, so I, I thought you, but you did.
0: You did mainly speak yeah. to the mission before, so
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was like, oh, I learned something on uh, top of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, um, yeah, so I had this idea, and it was at the time sitting in the head of a twenty-one-year-old. Yeah, and I thought, okay, what's next? What's the next step? And thankfully, my university had rolled out an accelerator program that you could do at the university, which was a semester course on how to basically validate your business idea. And they had a $5,000 pitch competition at the end. So I applied for that because I had a friend who'd applied for the semester previous and had done it and said it was awesome. And I thought, well, I don't know anything. I I, well, I didn't know a whole lot about businesses and neither did anybody that I knew in my family. So I put my hand up to that accelerator and that's how I got the business started, basically.
0: Fantastic. And so do you still run Fabella today?
1: I do, but it is um, licensed to another company now that has a team in place to run it, so that I can uh, spend more time on this new startup.
0: Fantastic! So that's maybe the segue. Maybe before we get into Provi, I mean, one thing that has come up is sort of in the in the past little um, exchange there is just how much of your identity and you think your career choices has have been shaped by your um, your indigenousness um, and that sort of heritage.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it. Um, For example, I've always approached businesses with, oh, and the mission is, and the impact of this business is, yes, there's been a, you know, hopefully this is going to make a whole lot of money because a lot of my family come from a low economic background. So there's huge uh, inroads to be made there. But there's always been that, okay, and what's the impact of this? And There's always considerations of, and what is the impact on the land, for example. So everything I've tried to do, I've tried to make sure that it's environmentally friendly or benefiting the environment in some way and not taking from it. So I would say those inherent values that I have, including collaboration, for example, um, like my mum will be the first person to tell you that when people call groups, uh, indigenous groups in Australia tribes, they're actually wrong because tribes is when you have a leader who leads a group of people, which is true for a lot of other um, First Nations uh, groups around the world. But in fact, we're called clans here because the decision making is collaborative between a group of elders. Um, So she always corrects people when they say tribes, for example. And that sort of collaboration in terms of the value and for community does also guide uh, everything I do.
0: It's amazing because it, it does seem like, you know, you've made um, deliberate career choices to work in the community um, and wanting to improve um, social and economic mobility for that community too.
1: Yeah, one thing I've always been mega passionate about is the ripple effects of whatever I'm doing. So, for example, Faye Bella was incorporating artwork from Indigenous artists around Australia in hopes that the positive ripple effects of that messaging getting out there and those learnings about their particular customs and culture go back into the community as well as the money that they make, which is why I've always encouraged artists to get into licensing and making sure they get royalties from what they do so that 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 inflow benefits them, it benefits their family, it benefits their communities, and those ripple effects can be huge.
0: Let's talk a bit about Provi. So, what, you know, you must have learned a lot from Fabella. So I'm curious what are the lessons that informed the, the next step to to Provi. Um, and maybe just take us through the, the mission um, and and what the organization does as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so Provi was actually directly inspired by Fabella. To work with artists, I had to learn about licensing, uh, getting a license to use artwork onto my products from artists. And that actually made me realize there was a gap here because a lot of the artists I would approach would have either very little knowledge about how licensing worked and it scared them as well because of that. But also I realized that there is an inherent power imbalance between businesses and artists Um, In that the resourcing, for example, like as an artist, you're often an independent creative. If you can afford an agent and lawyer to negotiate on behalf of you and be familiar with how licensing works, that's great. But not often the, the situation, especially for First Nations artists. So, and what? how it actually came about um, in terms of the direct idea was I had a lot of businesses coming to me when they realized what I was doing, asking me where I'd source the Indigenous artwork because they wanted to source artwork as well and showcase it in their products. And a lot of those businesses were non-Indigenous owned. So I would go, oh, well, here, here are my Indigenous artists, talk to them. Because again, for them, licensing is an amazing passive revenue stream for artists. But a lot of those times, those deals would just completely break down, either because the business owner would unintentionally say something ignorant, and the artist would get offended. Oh, really? And the whole yeah, and that's the thing is, I like, that amazes know, me
0: that that's a major <laughs> stumbling block for art licensing deals.
1: It definitely is, and again, I think it's just a lack of education. And I, I would that's the thing is, in the business owners I talk to, I never thought it was malicious the way that they described or said things. Um, but I think they like again, it was unintentional. I think half the time, they're mm-hmm. mentioning something about working with Indigenous artists and the artists going, well, that's offensive, F you, I'm not going to do the deal anymore. Yeah. And I thought that was such a shame because, again, that's like a massive passive revenue stream that the artists could have opened up for themselves. And I understand the whole like, well, they don't want to work with that type of business. But yep. often it, I don't think, again, I didn't think maliciousness was part of it. Yeah. I think it was just miseducation. Well, I
0: think intention matters in speech and mm-hmm. I think, you know, people – everyone's ignorant, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like all of us know a lot of things, but we also know absolutely nothing. And that's why we make mistakes often in speech and in uh, exchange.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think schools uh, were willfully also teaching the wrong thing, but also Aboriginal culture inherently was very secretive. And I think, you know, when everything sort of happened with colonization, the secrecy on our side of things didn't uh, contribute or help the situation not that that was bad but that is just, just a fact of the matter it's, it was a secret culture so obviously if the other side doesn't didn't understand us um they're probably going to say things wrong they've mispronounced things yep. and again I, that's why i think that it wasn't malicious i think it's just pure miseducation those deals would break down and or either side didn't understand the legalities of licensing which can be complicated but when you distill them down to the concepts, they're actually very basic. So I realized, you know what? It's just better that you two do not speak to each other, and I'm <laughs> going to be this middleman and in an nice. intermediary that you need to contact through. Because then I because I was kind of really good at sitting with someone um, who was either again uh, non indigenous or just un. un- uh, I don't want to say uneducated. Uninitiated, but maybe? Uninitiated, yeah. yeah. And um, they would say things wrong and I would just you know, kind of either kindly correct them or laugh. And um, I could sort of take it. So I would be that person and then I realized there should be a platform that does this, like the licensing between artists and businesses, because this was taking so much time away from building the activewear brand. And given I was also studying and trying to complete my degree at the same time, it was a lot. So I had a look And that's when I realized there's a gap there in the art market. And that's what gave me the idea for Yumi Law, it was called at first, which was art licensing for indigenous artists. But then as I worked with more and more artists, I realized actually it's a common problem for artists that they don't understand licensing and businesses sometimes unintentionally rip them off or also um, put themselves in a position where they're quite vulnerable as well. Like For example, a lot of business owners... Still thought you could just buy the painting and then put the artwork in the painting on things, and it was a okay. Like, mate, you're gonna get sued if you do that. So, <laughs> and and obviously, then the risk that risk for them um, sometimes just wasn't worth it, so they wouldn't do it at all. Um, and that's why probably came about. And it's gone through like three different name changes. Um, and then obviously, then I added on the NFTs when the NFT boom happened as well.
0: So b- before the NFT boom, was it more advisory and inter- intermediary kind of management between artists and um, and exhibitors or? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Like Yumi Law just had a library of Indigenous artwork and then businesses would reach out and then I would um, – help mediate those deals but also try and make it as simple as possible in terms of having, like, upfront licensing packages because what the industry also lacks is just a lack of, like, standardization. Like, image licensing, for example, with Shutterstock, you kind of know how much you need to pay. Mm -hmm. For artwork, there wasn't that. And so that was the issue um, and challenge that I encountered was I now had to create um, standardized packaging that did not rip off artists but also made it easy for businesses at the same time. And there's a lot of push and pull uh, within that battle.
0: And so how did NFT and the blockchain sort of change the game for you?
1: So the reason I even found out about NFTs was because uh, I realized as I was building Yumi Law and kind of making this like technology platform that I should know a bit about technology um, because I'd had a few friends, for example, raise money for tech startups and then all the money go down the drain um, because they were either like d- development of the product was longer than they thought it would be, and costs were um, overestimated or underestimated. So I thought, let's let me get some knowledge about the technology so that also when I'm managing developers, I'm not they're not speaking Chinese to me, and I'm sitting there like I don't know what the hell you said, but it sounds good to me. So <laughs> I did. I enrolled into a fintech course that Monash University um, was putting on, which is an amazing course, by the way, and it was a. Six-month course, it cost about $10,000, and you do three nights a week for three hours to learn Python and then Solidity, which was the language used to program on the Ethereum blockchain, and that was towards the end of the course. And it was within, and also I'd um, made sure that our group projects were kind of building things that I needed for my platform, and thankfully the people I worked with weren't Um, against it or anything like that and then learnt about NFTs and then the NFT boom happened. So it sort of just organically came about where I realised, like, holy crap, these are really cool and are massive for creators and I want to give artists access to that.
0: And so have Indigenous artists embraced the NFT boom and very active in the space?
1: Some have. I think, again, one of my missions has been to make sure they're early to the party and not late, which is common with technological innovation. Uh, so that's been a focus of mine and I've actually so far been calling or zooming or meeting indigenous artists in person to explain the technology and the good and the bad as well, because I think it's important that they're informed and I'm not just approaching with, look, they're amazing. Just do it. You'd be silly not to, but also going like, Hey, like these are the risks and these, but these are the benefits. So it's up to you whether you want to um, hop on to this or not. And so far, when I approach it that, when I give them sort of all of the information, which is what they want, um, they've been quite open to it. It's only a couple of times where they've sort of been like, look, I'll, I'll do more research and look into it. And we are naturally uh, a risk-averse peoples as well.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And um, how do you explain to these um, these Indigenous artists around um what the blockchain is, what NFTs are, because I think that would be a really good introduction just for the general audience on how to kind of simply explain that.
1: No, you're right. And blockchain, like imagine explaining that, yeah, to a non-Indigenous person um, who also is sitting there, like what the hell is this, and then explaining it to an Indigenous person, particularly those, for example, in the Torres Strait Islands, we speak Creole, which is like broken English, and thank God, I actually know how to speak that because I've needed that a few times. It's very tricky. But I've found using metaphors the best way to actually explain what it is. So as far as the blockchain goes and Web3, I always get people, I think people like look at information on the internet about NFTs and crypto and sort of get the surface level information and then run with it either good or bad, <laughs> yes. which I think which is actually quite dangerous. Very
0: dangerous. Very dangerous.
1: So you hear there's a lot of, for example, people who just blanket like, nah, not touching blockchain. Like I've had a few investors, for example, be like, love your pitch, love you. Hate your business, um, and I, when I talk to them and I get them to explain to me what they know about it, it's very little because mm. there's you know you see the hype and or you see the scams, um, and that's sort of there's two sides to it, but they don't actually understand a lot of the time how the technology works and what it actually means. So what I have realized is really important is getting people to think about the context of the internet. So I explained to people when web when web 1.0 came about which was the internet back then I'm I'm sure a lot of older people remember that people would look at computers and they were these massive massive things mm. and go no one is gonna like pay for that? That's a massive ass machine. I'm fine using my notebook and calculator. Like, I'm no one's going to be using that.
0: My dad has this great story about being a <laughs> yeah. medical student in America, yeah. and um, they had a computer room.
1: Yeah. And
0: when I say computer room, it was the entire room <laughs> was the computer.
1: Yeah, like they were massive. Like no one would be like, yeah, like as if people are going to buy that thing and haul that thing. Like you need a crane. Yeah, but. Um, I don't know if you realize now, you can't even go to the bathroom without a computer in your hand. Yep. And that's sort of what I um, envision that's going to happen with blockchain. So back then when the internet was introduced and they like there was lots of scams on the internet, back then people were like, oh, the internet's so scammy, yeah. we're not going to use that. But your business, if it doesn't have a website right now, it's probably struggling. Like, mm. if you need the internet. Yeah. So that's what I, I give people that context where we, that's where we sort of started. And then more education came out about the internet. So when people say things like, oh, you know, like crypto and NFTs are a scam, I explain to them, be- just because you get offers from Indian princes through your email address every day, do you delete your email address and not have an email address? Mm. Like, no, you'd be insane to. No,
0: it's be- yeah. it's much more fun to respond and try and form a dialogue.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, he might have a million dollars to send. You, you yeah, don't know. You don't know. So it's an opportunity. ask. That's come to you. Do- <laughs> yeah, no. But that's what I explain to people is just be- again, just because email it's like you get email scams, it doesn't mean you automatically block email. So I think people need to approach blockchain and this new technology with that sort of mindset of I'm going to learn Mm -hmm. and then ultimately decide once I've gathered enough information, whether it's for me. But I also think it's so inevitable that it's going to be for you whether you like it or not. And this is what I how I explain blockchain to people is it's essentially just a digital ledger and a network that exists between computers and I liken it to clouds the cloud for example like storing things in the cloud is a lot safer right because then if something is stored just on your laptop and your laptop burns in a hideous fire goodbye whatever was on your laptop mm. if you if it wasn't stored on the cloud mm. and that's all blockchain is it's just a a digital ledger that, um, that a network of computers has created, which makes your information quite safe, right? Because, again, it's, it's you know, if all those physical devices die, it's still on the network. And it's very transparent. Everybody in the world can see what's on the blockchain, whereas um, and a lot of the ways that, like, Web 1.0 and Web 2.0 businesses conduct themselves is, like, you need to go through their system to sort of see what's on the back end. Blockchain brings that to the forefront. So blockchain, the reason why it's called blockchain also is your the information is encrypted in a series of blocks. And each block has uh, what's called a hash key that um, is related to the block before it. So i.e. it would record something like Mike uh, bought Alicia a coffee. Alicia didn't want that coffee anymore because she doesn't drink coffee. She <laughs> gave it to someone else. Like that, Not, a as it is. Not a true yeah. story. Not a
0: true story.
1: I only drink mochas because, again, I've got a childlike <laughs> taste of, taste of uh, But, yeah, that's that's exactly what the blockchain would yep. record as we go. Blockchain, block A says this, block B is the transfer, and block C, the coffee's now ended up with uh, the other dude, for example. And then as far as um, crypto goes, digital money, you, again, think about the concept of money. That's not a thing that nature made. People made money. It's a,
0: um a legal fiction.
1: Yeah. People used to just trade things with each other back in the day. Like there's stories about, in 17th century, that a, a tribe in the northern territory called the Yolnu tribe actually was trading back with the Chinese back then. So when people say things like, oh, we never saw anyone before the British, that's false. We were trading things with people from other countries for years. Um, And we used trade tool for tool kind of thing, like whatever we didn't want but the Chinese wanted. For example, they wanted sea cucumbers. We were like, take our slugs. We don't care about them. And then the Chinese would give us cool things. So. That money was a thing that people made up, and people have just um, sort of realized with blockchain. It because it has a Bitcoin, for example, is the most native thing to blockchain because it turns out a series of number, and there's only a certain amount of of those numbers. Like it's um, it's finite, not infinite. You can assign that. You can make that a currency because that's what money is. It's a there's a finite amount of money. Yeah, scarcity. Exactly. Mm. So. And it's a better way of um, assigning money, really, because then you're not trying to go through the federal bank. And that's what um, the other thing about blockchain that scares people is it's uh, decentralized versus centralized. Society right now is centralized. And again, I take that example, going back to the Internet. When you were at Web 1.0, for example, what the Internet looked like was big sites like Wikipedia or ComBank or whatever, providing information to viewers. All we could do back then was read the information. Um, You couldn't even comment back then. Web 2.0, we were suddenly able to interact with those websites. But again, all that information and data were coming from a centralized company, um, which is like your Facebooks and your Instagram, for example. Uh, What blockchain is doing is you're now able to transfer money to someone without a bank, um, without no centralized, like going through any central bank or government or anything like that, which actually makes it, again, it can be dangerous, It's a, but it's a trustless system. You don't have to trust that the bank's actually going to send your money. It'll just send. If I want to send Mike to Bitcoin, it'll just send Mike to Bitcoin.
0: Please do. <laughs> I would <laughs> love if that. I, if I had
1: two Bitcoin, yeah. Mike- I think I. I, I have no crypto, so life. that that would
0: be great. Great for me to get some some crypto in my wallet. <laughs> yeah. And so I mean, the evolution of that being mm-hmm. sort of Ethereum and what it's able to do with smart contracts, and mm-hmm. you know how mm-hmm. that applies to NFTs. Maybe if you could just talk a bit about that too.
1: Yes. So NFTs are a fun one. So we had crypto first. That was the first thing that came about um, out of the blockchain movement, and you've seen what's happened with that. I think, and then you've seen NFTs. So NFTs are just non-fungible tokens. Um, And to understand NFTs, you just need to really break up the definition of the word. So tokens can be anything and represent anything. Money is a token. Like if I give a $5 note, that's a token saying I've given you five of this currency. Non-fungible, all that means is it's unique. And the metaphor that I use for this one, so I've been practicing on a few people, but think of it like this: If I've bought a movie ticket uh, to Bat- the latest Batman, which is amazing, by the way, really um, want to say it, our uh, Pat did a great job. Uh, if I, if I've bought a movie ticket. And suddenly, I don't want to go anymore. Like I'm like, I'm, not, I'm a hardcore Christian Bale fan. I'm not going to go see this. I can give that ticket to <laughs> I love another that example. <laughs> so random. Yeah. I'm a random person, but uh, I can give that ticket to a friend, and they can go and use that and redeem that ticket for its value because there's nothing unique on that ticket. But if I've bought an airplane ticket to Hawaii and for some reason I can't go, like I've got COVID or something like that. I can't just give it to my next door neighbor and my neighbor go on that flight for me yep. because my name is on that ticket and they, they check ID. So suddenly you're then having to go through the airport system, the the flight system to change it to that other person's name. That's the the main difference between a fung- something fungible, which is like it's not unique or anything like that, to non-fungible, which has an identity attached to it. Um, And again, like money is fungible. For example, if I have a $5 note and Mike has five $1 coins, we can swap that and there's no change in value whatsoever. But you can't do that with an airplane ticket unless you go through the central body. So that's all non-fungible tokens are, which is why they say anything can be a non-fungible token. Mm. Like a photo, for example, like again, if I take a photo of an apple, I can't just swap that. The photo of a cow, it's not the same thing. It's a different subject. And all non-fungible tokens are is they've ascribed an identity of ownership of that exact image. So when people say those dumb things about oh, it's just a JPEG. Can't I just screenshot The amount of times that (laughs) someone has- That's exactly what my wife said. What's the the difference between me screenshotting that JPEG?
0: Why wouldn't you just take a screenshot and then you own it?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Mm. And again, the metaphor I provide there is uh, there's only one Mona Lisa in the world, isn't there? And we all know that's hanging in the Louvre. I can make copies of that. I can take a photo. Like iPhone cameras are really good these days. Mm. I could take a photo of that Mona Lisa portrait and I could print that out and hang that up and frame that but do you think anyone's going to buy it from me thinking it's the only original, like it's the original Mona Lisa? The answer is no. And, and but again, we've had to trust that the Louvre has has the original, like you've got to trust that. Yep. NFTs, you don't have to do that. Your identity is forever recorded on the blockchain, which anyone in the world can read. So it'll say Alicia is the person that owns that original photo of the Apple. And that has value. And so there's sort of like three arguments that come up against NFTs, which I'd love to um, explain on this show today. The three are uh, people don't understand the utility. So like, what is the point of them? And that, again, I think is people lack context. So with NFTs, what you can do right now with it, with the contracts um, and the rights they give you, is you can make it your profile picture. So you would have seen people making those like gorillas. Yeah, like, crazy Twitter- apes or Yeah, yeah, the bored yeah. apes.
0: Apocalyptic yeah. apes, that's all. Yeah, I
1: mean. yeah, yeah. Apocalyptic apes, yep, mm-hmm. as your profile picture on social media, right? And the other thing you can do with it is you can hang it in a virtual gallery in like one of those virtual worlds. And that's all you can do with it. You can't really put it on products and, and, and create money selling them on T-shirts mm-hmm. right now unless you get permission from them mm-hmm. because there's no license attached to it. However the whole point and why people want to buy them right now is you can hang it in virtual galleries and we are going more and more into that virtual world and social media has actually been the stepping stone to actually doing that. For example, people care a lot right now about what their image looks like on Instagram and Facebook. Like, And it is sort of that if you don't have social media, you don't really exist. People don't see what you're up to. So people create these like personas of themselves And in virtual worlds, people create an avatar Mm. of themselves or, you know, you wear the virtual goggles, you can make your character look like whatever you are. And they actually say there's a few, for example, virtual reality, um, like worlds where people, there's people asleep on the ground because like their avatars are asleep on the ground because the humans wearing them love being in that virtual world so much, or love what they look like so much in that world that they don't want to take the goggles off. So you've got to take that context <laughs> in point. And hey, that like sounds unhealthy, I know, but <laughs> that's, that's where society's moving is. We're moving more into that virtual world, and NFTs is the only way you can own things in those virtual worlds, just like you want to own land and cars here as as, as physical assets. But non-fungible tokens are the only things you can own. So non-fungible art, for example, has value all of a sudden because we are going to be interacting in those worlds. Mm.
0: Yeah, so very important for licensing and royalties. Did you want to go yeah. through the other two things?
1: Yeah, so yeah. there's utility. That's mm-hmm. the the yeah. other thing, which also is broadening now, by the way, more projects. Like remember, we're still quite new uh, to this um, technology, but more projects are coming up that are giving NFTs more utility, i.e. ticket sales. Suddenly you'll get a unique ticket that no one else has that you can sell later on. You're suddenly making money, um, even after you spent money, which you, can't, you currently can't do. So, or, you know, you can, you can sell a ticket from like an ACDC concert, but um, it's very tricky. You, there's a unique buyer out there for that kind of thing. But with NFTs, that, that changes the game for a lot of industries. The other argument that comes up is, uh, you know, it's scams. Oh, there's a lot of scams. But again, back to that email address argument, just because there's an Indian prince messaging you every day that's sitting in your scam folder, do you delete your email address? No, right? No. You need it. You need it for work. You need it for all types, all types of things. Mm. And there are going to be scams. It's a new tech um, and people are taking photos of artists' um, artworks, for example, and minting them as NFTs without their permission. That is really, really wrong and very dangerous for creatives. However, I think the responsibility falls on the marketplaces to actually have do, like, do their due diligence and make sure they're actually um, validating that the ownership of the, uh, the actual asset is owned by the lister. Uh, I think that, again, I think a lot of marketplaces that aren't doing that right now, um, not mentioning any, but a lot of artists that are just like, um, you know, having that sort of thing happen to them, they're eventually going to stop trusting those marketplaces and it'll become like a pirate bay because you're not doing the right thing and you are allowing people to profit off of other people's work. So I think it it really comes down to those marketplaces to take responsibility and not just like list whatever comes onto their platform. So I think that, and that will happen naturally and really organically. The third um, argument is the energy consumption, and again, this is because I think people are reading surface-type level info and hearing one thing about it and going, oh, it's bad. It's, everything's bad then, but it's it's like a gun, right? Like a gun is not dangerous until someone actually loads it with a, with bullets and, and um, uses it the wrong way. Uh, anything that you use the wrong way is going to be bad, but does it make the actual tool bad? I think people really need to think about that and with how new the technology is, yes, we started with Ethereum, for example, which is, it is quite bad. It uses a lot of energy to actually um, do what it's supposed to do. And I'm not going to go into consensus or anything like that because that's, that's getting deep into the tech and how the tech works. But we've come a long way since Ethereum. And that's why all these sort of layer two blockchains are popping up like Polygon and things like that. And they use way less energy. To give you guys context, minting an NFT on Ethereum is equivalent to sending 22,000 emails. Minting it on Polygon is equivalent to sending two emails. That's a huge difference. So we're
0: seeing some real Moore's law in effect.
1: Mm -hmm, Definitely. And more and more, like I found another um, consensus service the other day, Hedera, which is equivalent, like it's less than sending one email. It uses basically nothing and it's so cheap to mint on there. So you really got to – you can't sort of have this blanket judgment of blockchain because of its early um, form. Like, you know, the the internet in early form had – what things like Microsoft Explorer and Bing, which are a bit more clunky, but now then Google emerged, for example, then people migrated to that because it was just a better service. So, same thing with blockchain um, is looking out for that. Uh, and it's actually like analyzing and going, oh, yep, yeah, the energy consumption of this is way better. Um, and for a lot of artists, for example, I've seen a lot of artists come out and say, because the energy consumption is bad, not touching it. Blockchain is evil. In a way, I think it's sort of cutting your nose off to spite your face. is mm-hmm. You've put this blanket rule on yourself um, with, you know, scams and environment, but done the right way in those projects that are coming out now that are doing due diligence on listings that are using the right blockchains. You could make a lot of not just revenue, but connect more deeply with your fans um, as well with NFTs. So I really, I think I do employ creatives and not just artists, designers and photographers, videographers, for example, to take a deeper look into it and and just make a, like a, the choice of what platform is best for you to use.
0: So there's obviously a lot of pe- artists out okay. there who are keen to make digital art, and it makes so much sense from their perspective. <laughs> what is the argument for why someone like myself might want to purchase digital art uh, mm-hmm. via an NFT versus mm-hmm. physical art?
1: Well, again, I think physical art, you purchase it, you hang it on your wall, Right. Digital art, same thing. You purchase it. You can hang it um, in a in your gallery in the virtual world, and you can buy those. You can buy plots of land in virtual worlds right now, and brands are starting to do that. So you can do that, or you purchase it, wait for it to increase in value, and flip it. But again, I think those sort of NFT projects, which have very limited utility, which are the ones that you're seeing right now with digital art. Um, they will adapt and change. And the projects that come up that give uh, creatives more utility in terms of what their NFTs let them do, those will stick around. So I still think, yeah, you know, if you're a digital art enthusiast, hell yeah, go and buy some digital art. But if you're not hugely into art, then that's probably just not something that you would
0: True. So buy. it's it's yeah. like more appealing to the existing art lovers. Yeah. So I, I like art. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just getting into it. I, yeah. I think like... If I was to buy an NFT or digital art, um, how do you – what's a digital gallery? Like do Mm. I have – is there a personal space that I can Mm. hang my stuff and then invite Mm. people to look at it or –
1: Yeah, definitely. And people are doing that. People are um, curating art collections and then charging people to go and view their art collection. And where you can actually do that is you've got those uh, metaverse worlds now like Decentraland and Sandbox – you just like in the physical world can go and buy some land there, Mike, and just like Sims, you can build a gallery. But do
0: I want to live in a world created by Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, that's you talk about Meta here. Um, meta is an interesting one. You know, they, Facebook changed their name to Meta, and there's a lot of developers actually who are against um, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, Metaverse.
0: But I could live next to Snoop Dogg.
1: Yeah, in Sandbox. Yeah, that's the thing. it's, it's
0: only four hundred grand.
1: Yeah, it, it's only four hundred. <laughs> But the thing is, right, is you, you need to look look at what metaverses you want to build in. Just because you've got, uh, like, Mark Zuckerberg's meta doesn't mean you need to go buy land in that it's one. It's
0: like the Indian Prince scam argument. Yeah. yeah. You yeah.
1: can go and buy it. Buy, like, Decentraland's great. land Decentraland is decentralized. So there's no sort of um, one personal entity that is in charge of that, which is why what makes it so cool. Whereas Sandbox is owned by an entity. It's not decentralized. So I always encourage people... Go and buy land in Decentraland or something that's actually properly decentralized. And then just you don't need to know any coding. Um, just like Sims, you can build your gallery there, hang your digital art pieces up, and you can even make a condition of entry, um, for example, that you have to have a certain NFT to access your gallery, and then they can come in and view your gallery. You this, can monetize that. Does this
0: scare you at all, like this, the, the futurism that we're currently discussing?
1: It actually excites me. Okay. It excites me a lot. I think society... Will change in a lot of ways, and if if done the right way, the responsible way, hopefully it's in good ways. You know, for example, hopefully um, environmental impact is a is a huge um, uh, conditional value that people have, and that's what, for example we're using our NFTs. It probably a portion of um, each NFT sale goes to climate action groups globally, um, which. For me, and also the circular economy concept as well. For example, we offer NFTs where fans can share in the revenue of artists' revenue and directly back artists and then are incentivized to promote their favorite artists, that really excites me because then suddenly you're not having to go, you know, artists aren't having, musicians, for example, aren't having to sign on to recording studios anymore because their fans can directly back them and give them the finances they need to actually pursue their craft. And that could be the only job that they have to do, whereas right now for artists, the typical salary in a year is like 28K, which is not livable. So a lot of artists have to have side jobs. They have full-time jobs besides their craft, and they can't put in time to their craft and developing their craft. So that that's what excites me is the fact that they'll get more revenue streams, better access to financial support, and not have to share with as, as many middlemen as well. So the that sort of future and the fact that um, the future looks decentralized, um, i.e. not having to go through big corporations, Um, that really excites me.
0: I think you've made me a bit more excited too now. (laughs) Framing it that way. And so you're about to embark on a very exciting trip to Austin, Texas, or you you might actually already be there by the time this comes out. Yes. Tell us about that part of your journey and what you're hoping to do with Provi over there. Yeah,
1: so I made the decision uh, to move to America, mostly because the the blockchain um, hubs are there. We're a little bit behind in Australia, and there's just more sort of access to resources and talent, plus uh, the time zone um, is a lot more friendly for remote working and building global teams. So I have made that decision to move to America, um, which is daunting because I've lived in Australia my whole life. Um, But the best thing is, the reason I feel so secure in making that decision is I've got already such a strong connection to my culture and communities. I'm not going to lose that by moving over there. And I want to give, um, just increase the chances of success of my startup essentially and do anything that will help it succeed. And one of those things I see is, is moving to being on the ground in the US um, and having greater access to yeah, capital and talent and that sort of thing. So yeah, excited, but uh, scared at the same time.
0: And, and also amazing ribs and barbecue. Um, you'll be surrounded by great <laughs> comedy and podcasters. You're going to be living the dream.
1: Oh, I am excited about that part. of think, yeah, definitely. Uh, I love stand-up comedy. Uh, all of the comedians I watch are actually American. Um, me too. Like, yeah, Kevin Hart, if you're hearing this, please come and see me. Huge fan. <laughs> and Tiffany Haddish, of course, but huge, of course, huge fan. Of course,
0: of <laughs> course. Um, all right, well, this has been an amazing chat. How can people connect with you and learn a bit more about your work at ProView?
1: Well, you can go to the Provy website at www.provy.io, and Provy is spelled P-R-O-V-V-Y. It's actually short for provenance because it's all about um, showing me like where things have come from. Mm. Uh, so you can hop onto that website. And if you go to the about section, you can actually book a call directly with me. My email address is also on there, or you can find me on LinkedIn under Alicia Geary as well. I love having a chat. So don't feel, uh, don't be shy.
0: And um, if anyone wants to have a chat with you, maybe bring a mocha,
1: <laughs> yeah. if they can. Uh, look, I'm a, a mocha. Also, I'm a huge foodie. Um, and that's not to say that I have sophisticated palate at all. Literally, if you just shop with a cheeseburger and fries, I'm there.
0: <sighs> what an offer. <laughs> so good having you. Thanks for coming.
1: Thank you for having me, Mike.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.